second reading is from the letter of 1 Peter, chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief of shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the lion, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same words of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear God, we do thank you for the joy and care of children, and we again offer those kids up to you, and we thank you that you see us that same way as we see them. The delight we have as we watch them leave, um, that you are delighted with us, that we matter to you, that you love us, that we can enter in knowing that you want to guide us and shepherd us like we heard about in Psalm 23. We uh, come and offer ourselves to you. We offer the weeks we've had, the things we're thinking about, the things coming up in days to come. And we come to you and say, please teach us and feed us and instruct us, for we need your words of life and guidance. In your holy name, amen. 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 Well, good morning. My name is Dean Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. And if you have a Bible and want to turn to 1 Peter 5, that'd be great. Again, it could be a hard copy Bible, a Bible on your phone. You know, I think we can agree that you and I are surrounded by situations that demand leadership. If you read the paper listen to the news in the car or on TV, there are, there are world situations that demand leadership, there are domestic situations that demand leadership, local situations that demand leadership, many of us voted in elections this past week, local situations, there are sports situations that demand leadership, lots of games today we're all probably into and watching. And I think we can agree that being a leader is not only important and super vital, but it's hard, right? Being a leader, if you've ever been in a leadership situation, is just hard work. Which is why there's so many books and talks and conferences and experts on leadership, right? I took a few minutes yesterday to do a brief pass plugging in leadership on Amazon, and these are some of the titles that came up. You can group them different ways. So there's, there's leadership books that highlight principles, right? So here there's a book called Begin With We. Ten Principles Building and Sustaining a Culture of Excellence. There's another book called The Savage Leader. I love that title. There's a big lion on the front of the book. 
13 principles. This author will give you three more than the last author. 13 principles become a better leader from the inside out. You do both books, you get 23 principles. That's a lot. I frankly, frankly couldn't keep up with that many, but it's still great, and I'm sure they're great books. There are lots of books by military leaders, and in particular on this Veterans Day weekend, as we are in your debt, for those of you who have and are serving, and are so thankful for you, there are great books by military leaders. Right? How to Lead to Win, 33 Powerful Stories and Leadership Lessons. This is by a former admiral and top gun fighter pilot. Again, if you bought that book with the other two, now you have 56 things you can think about about leadership. There's another admiral who wrote a book called The Wisdom of the Bullfrog. I have no idea what that's about, but it's a great title. If you're a Navy SEAL, you probably, every third Navy SEAL, it seems, writes a book. There's a book called Extreme Ownership, How Navy SEALs Win. Frankly, I'm in, I'd like to hear how Davis says when. There's, of course, books from sports leaders. There's Vince Lombardi on leadership, the Green Bay Packer coach, John Wooden, the UCLA coach, basketball coach on leadership, Julie Ertz, the recently retired U.S. Women's National Team soccer player, written a book on leadership. Even the Harvard Business Review has a book called 10 Must Reads on Leadership from Sports, and it has articles by Alex Ferguson, the former Manchester United, Manager Andre Agassi, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the former basketball player. There's books on leadership specifically for women. One's called She Thinks Like a Boss, Nine Essential Skills for Women. There's books by well-known leadership authors. Many of you probably heard of Simon Sink. He's got lots of books. One called Leaders Lead Last. John Maxwell, certainly very well-known. How Successful People Lead. I like that title. It just gets right to it. I don't have to wonder about bullfrogs when I hear that title. Of course, Brene Brown has a book on leadership, Dare to Lead. There's lots of books on servant leadership. My favorite, at least from yesterday, was this book, if you can put the slide up, called Surrounded by Idiots. <laughs> Two million, there's lots of stories on this title, right? Just the title is awesome. If you're sitting there and you thought, dang straight, this might be the book for you. Um, there's two million copies sold, so much so that this Thomas Erickson actually has a whole series on the surrounded by titles. This is just one of them. Again, four types of human behavior and how to effectively communicate in business and life. There's lots of jokes I've been making all day, uh, for 24 hours in my head about this book. Like, again, if you're looking for a Christmas gift for your team at work, here's the book for you. Um, but also, I, I laugh because Thomas Erickson's living out how he's surrounded by idiots even in the title of his book, because whoever helped him write the subtitle forgot to tell Never Split an Infinitive. So the idiot that wrote, instead of how to communicate effectively, or how, to, or how effectively to communicate, instead said, how to effectively communicate. So I looked at this yesterday, I started laughing, I thought, well, sure. We are all surrounded by idiots, even, even your editor was an idiot, and yet you still published the book. Now, in all honesty, I'm sure I could learn something and improve as a leader in my marriage and my family here at CCV or other things I do by each of these books. I'm sure there are great things in each of these books. And as you and I round into November and the holidays, we are still in our series on becoming the people of God. What's it look like to be the people of God and why it's so important? I hope by now you've caught a little bit this fall if you've been with us. It's important for you. It's important for God's witness. It's important for God's glory. It's really important for the world that you and I be the people of God. And the last few weeks we've been walking through the New Testament, particularly the Apostle Paul, because for the last five weeks we visited places like Philippi and Ephesus 
in Corinth and Rome. So for five weeks, we've heard Paul tell us how important it is to be the people of God. But this morning, we're shifting gears and we're going to look not at the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Peter. And Peter's going to talk about leaders and how important they are. So we're looking at 1 Peter. You just heard a passage read, 1 Peter 5, the last part of that book. What's going on in 1 Peter? 1 Peter is written near the end of Peter's life, probably 62 to 64 AD, while Peter is in Rome. We believe he's in prison and will eventually die there in Rome. He's writing after 30 years of watching the gospel of Jesus change the ancient Roman world. It changed Peter and his life, and then it spread like wildfire through the Mediterranean world and changed that Roman world as well. Peter's seen and visited churches all around that world. He's watched his friends take good news all around that world, and he's watched, again, this joyful spread, but now difficult persecution as well. Rome itself, about 10 years before, actually kicked all the Jews, and therefore a lot of the Jewish Christians, out of Rome under persecution, just about a decade before Peter is writing. And Peter has tasted of this persecution personally because a couple years before, his own brother Andrew was crucified as a part of a persecution. And of course, many of Peter's other friends have been killed by now as well. Under this kind of growth and opposition, Peter is now writing a letter to encourage us, to exhort us and warn the people of God, be the people of God, stay strong as the people of God. This is what it's going to look like. He sent this letter as an encyclical, which is a letter we believe that passed around. It'd be like Johnny wrote a letter to the churches in Vienna, but said, hey, pass it around. And went to Oakton and Annandale and Arlington and Falls Church and McLean. It circled around to encourage and warn and exhort us. And Peter has sent a letter to Asia Minor to do that same thing. What's super fun is to, to figure out where it's going. So if you remember in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and gives languages to the people of God to share the good news of Jesus. And people from all these places say, we can hear in our own tongue. Including places like Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia. So if you then turn over 30 years later to 1 Peter 1, Peter starts his letter this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, to those who are left exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia... Peter's writing some of the same people who were there in Pentecost in Acts 2. They're probably people who were there and heard Peter in Jerusalem in Acts 2 who are receiving this letter 30 years later in these places in what is now Turkey. Think about if you were there or you told your kids about how you were there. Now you get this letter in our church and on Sunday morning we're going to read from that same Peter who I heard 30 years before. Who's been faithful to Jesus and is now sending us a warning, an encouragement, a personal letter. How powerful that would be. This again, Peter who, who saw Jesus anointed by John with the Holy Spirit with John the Baptist and was there for the teaching and the blessing and the healing and the dying and the rising and the ascending of Jesus is writing you and I to tell us what it looks like to be the people of God. Throughout the letter, he's taught them and encouraged them to hold fast to Jesus. He's taken a long time to talk about just how important baptism is and what baptism means for the young church. He's cheered them to be faithful when the world turns on them and thinks they're nuts and crazy and intolerant and dumb. And he's told them what to expect. That as they remain faithful, holding fast to Jesus, they're going to experience suffering and persecution and difficulty. 
like your brother, your beloved brother being crucified, difficult. And now in our chapter, he's wrapping up, and what he's going to highlight is for you and I to be the people of God, we're going to need good leaders. You and I are going to need strong leaders. We're going to need good leaders. And then you could take and look at 1 Peter 5 for all kinds of things. I wanted and thought about covering the whole great phrase about the devil being a roaring lion. I actually watched several minutes of videos of roaring lions on YouTube yesterday to prep. But there's so many things in here we can't do them all. So we're going to have to come back to that one another time. But I do want to highlight four things Peter says. What's it look like? What are leadership principles for life in the kingdom of God and in this world from the man Jesus said was the cornerstone of the church, Peter? And I want to talk about just four things. First, if we could put that slide up. I want to talk about K-Y-L-Y and L-Y-L-O. K-Y-L-Y and L-Y-L-O. Know yourself to lead yourself and lead yourself to lead others. Know yourself to lead yourself. First, lead yourself to lead others. Peter says in verse 3, be an example to the flock. Be an example to the flock. And you can't be an example to the flock if you are not leading yourself very well. It's hard to lead others if you're not leading yourself. Maybe you've had a supervisor or a boss or a leader who, who would demand leadership from you but didn't exhibit it in their own life and how frustrating that was to be under and a part of. Everyone needs to learn how to lead themselves. This is an exhortation from Peter we all can apply. And what it means is that everybody here is a leader. When you and I get out of bed tomorrow, you and I get, each get to lead somebody. Raise your hand. You get to lead that person tomorrow in some way, shape, or form. Now, it's a lot easier to go through life blaming everybody else and their leadership. If they did that, if they did that, well, this happened to me, why can't they... But true leadership begins with looking at ourselves. True maturity actually begins demanding an honest assessment of myself and yourselves and a willingness to lead yourself first. If you want to be mature, if you want to grow up, you need to embrace the reality that you are the first step in leadership, learning how to lead yourself. When I used to coach rec league soccer, I'd often tell my, my kids and the kids who are on the team, hey, guess what? Your biggest opponent is yourself. Your biggest opponent today is yourself. So Peter encouraged us first to be an example to the flock, to learn how to start with and lead ourselves. This church, the church here, Christ Church Vienna, the church around the world, the church in Northern Virginia, needs good leaders. Every denomination, not just our denomination. Leaders that are students and accountants and lawyers and friends, God and grandparents, siblings, aunts, uncles, mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers, people who are able to demonstrate the leadership like Peter that he demands. Be an example to the flock. There's a great quote just down the hall of this school with, by Teddy Roosevelt. If you walk that way just past the gym, there's all these plaques and quotes. And there's one there with Teddy Roosevelt. And it says, if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. <laughs> if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. That's Teddy's great way of saying, know yourself to lead yourself before you lead yourself and lead others. So a question you and I can ask this week, knowing again and assuming we are all leaders in some way, how am I doing in knowing and leading myself? 
Another way to ask it might be to, to, act, to position yourself outside yourself. What do you think it's like to be on the other side of your leadership? What do you think it's like to be someone being led on the other side of your leadership? What do you like to be around and how you use your time? What do you like to be around and how you clean up or make messes or clean up after yourself? What do you like and how you use your words or your finances? What do you like and how you treat others? Some of you know I used to teach a graduate school class of fellows here and they, I would ask them here in Northern Virginia, I would ask them often to write papers. And one of the students one time wrote me a paper about a big event she had and how um, she was overseas on a trip with a bunch of students from her school and how she was always the one that was late and running late and how it was okay because she had these great experiences. And I remember thinking, what would it be like to be on the other side of your leadership? It would be terrible. Because the other 25 people, as you have these great experiences and aren't leading yourself, are all having to accommodate themselves for you. How do you lead yourself? Be a good question to ask and maybe of yourself and maybe of someone you trust. What's it like to be on the other side of my leadership and how I lead myself? A very humble question to ask and think about. Because if you're not a good leader of yourself, and we all have places we're not, we're all saying, learning from Peter, it means you lead some gaps, right? We talked about this on the men's retreat a bit. We looked at Nehemiah 3 and Nehemiah building the wall, the list of the men and women who rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. We talked there about the demand in the community to do a good job for you. I, I have a responsibility to lead myself to build my section of wall for the whole team. Because let's say... Everybody here does a great job. The Magnusons do a great job. The Hunters do a great job. The Carlsons do a great job. Susan Gates does a great job. The Bottles do a great job. Everybody does a great job on their space of the wall, and I do a terrible job. I do a terrible job leading myself and in my part of the kingdom where God's put me. Guess what that means when we think about the wall and the family of God being strong and protected together? It means it doesn't matter what you did, because I'm so bad at it, I just let in the enemy. Right? Ten foot wall, ten foot wall, ten foot wall, ten foot wall, two foot wall. Oh, shoot. And what Peter is saying is we need leaders. We need people who are examples of the flock who lead themselves well. And Peter knows from his own story. That's some of the beauty of Peter. We know Peter's story. There's some times in the Gospels he is a terrible leader and a terrible part of the wall. He's, build, he's building a six inch wall, not even a two foot wall. He's got a hard heart. He's arrogant. He's trying to tell Jesus what to do. Later in Acts, he doesn't want to be around the Gentiles. But here he is 30 years later. And Jesus has transformed him. And he's exhorting and encouraging you and I to lead ourselves. Know yourself. Lead yourself. So that we can lead others. And love others. So that's the first thing. First principle from Peter. Second thing. Be a good shepherd. Be a good shepherd. One way to mark if you're leading well with others after you're leading yourself is to know and think about, am I a good shepherd? Peter uses that image here. We've heard from Psalm 23. It's a consistent biblical image, right? Shepherd, shepherd, shepherd. Many of us are responsible for people. Could be a work team. Could have assistants in your office. Could be kids if you're a teacher. Could be kids of your own, committees, small groups here at church or in the youth group. You might be on a sport team or the band or the choir or the drama department. You and I are all part of groups of people. 
And we're all to lead them as a shepherd would, as the good shepherd would. Shepherd the flock is what Peter tells us. And a good shepherd for God's people and really all people is a shepherd, tending and loving, staying strong, putting the welfare of the sheep and their care above our own. I would argue you could be a good shepherd in any place where you work or live and, and know God's favor and encouragement and success. The difference is the contrast between being a dictator or a shepherd, right? Would I like to get my way or make sure they thrive themselves? Am I more interested in their success or my own success? Because shepherds are concerned about the flock at their own sacrifice. Again, consider what we heard from Psalm 23. What do we learn about being a shepherd? Well, shepherds make sure sheep have nourishment and care. Shepherds lead people to new adventures. Shepherds move sheep to higher ground. Shepherds know when to prod and poke and rest and go through risk. Shepherds even lead people through dangerous and risky and even evil seasons. The valley of the shadow of death. I mean, that's, that's a daunting season. Being a good shepherd is an art and a science and is very demanding. This is a quote from a Bible scholar named Warren Wearsby. How does a good shepherd behave? If a sheep is too rebellious, the shepherd may have to discipline him in some way. If a sheep has a special need, the shepherd might carry it in his arms next to his heart. At the close of each day, the faithful shepherd would examine each sheep to see if it needed special attention. He would anoint the bruises with healing oil and remove the briars from the wool. A good shepherd would know each of his sheep by name and would understand the special traits of each one. What if we took this to your place of work where you're responsible for people? And we said, this is, hey, this is the standard. I'm, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, and Jesus tells me to be the good shepherd. And so this is the standard of manager or leader I want to be. Would the people under our care go, yeah, well, that's, that's you for sure. Absolutely. That last sentence is really convicting, isn't it? A good shepherd would know each of his sheep by name and would understand the special traits of each one. It's a high bar. Be leaders. Be examples. We're going to need it. Because we're living in a world like Peter did that isn't always excited about Jesus. It might actually be actively opposed to Jesus. Lead yourself. Be a good shepherd. Then third, be a follower. Meaning, follow Jesus and develop humility. Be a follower and develop humility. A good, godly, Peter-approved leader follows Jesus before they lead anybody else. It's part of knowing yourself and leading yourself. They're cultivating an active life of surrender to Jesus and understanding that to be like Him means to become more humble. We talked about this last week in Philippians 2. Peter talk, or Johnny talked about Philippians 2. And in that, we have the great hymn of Jesus Surrender, not considering himself more highly than the rest of us and emptying himself on the cross. One of my favorite Bible sort of preacher heroes loves that text and I've heard him teach on it several times and he would say it's sort of like you're in line at the store and you let somebody go in front of you. You know, you, you're there with your cart and they have your three things and you let them go. And that's what active humility is. Almost more so, it'd be like you have the two or three things and you, they have two carts and you're like, oh, go ahead. 
I, like that's like deep. That's what Jesus would do. I'm not there. But that would be really helpful, right? There are actually three references to humility and being humble in these few verses in First Peter. Treating someone better than myself, considering them more highly than myself. Humility is not passivity or being conquered by fear or the desire for approval. Humility, again, is that others matter more. And recognizing that my life is a gift and I have lots to be thankful and grateful for, and I can go out and be a blessing to other people. Two of the more interesting marks of Moses in the Old Testament, I think, are one, it says Moses saw God face to face and he was the humblest man on the face of the earth. I think those are absolutely interconnected. Moses saw God face to face. He knew who he was in the eyes of God. Good place to start in knowing yourself and leading yourself. And then he was the humblest man on the face of the earth. For us, like Peter, it's tempting to lead as the world leads instead of being as a shepherd. But he exhorts us to develop humility. It's actually a virtue of being a shepherd because you're thinking of the sheep first. These things work together. Hey, Peter's saying it's going to be great to be a shepherd because that'll actually develop the humility in me. I was speaking with someone recently, a, a, a retired three-star general that's become a friend over the last eight to ten months. And he had a great line. This is a guy who studied and thought a lot about leadership as a general. And he said, you know, my experience is that leadership is a choice, not a title. It's a choice, not a title. It's more like a verb than a noun, is how I would say that. Are we interested in being a leader, having a position, looking a certain way, because then we'll have a title, something on a nameplate on a desk? Or because then we realize, oh my gosh, I just shepherded the flock. That's so responsible. Dear God, help me do it. It's not easy to develop this kind of leadership here in D.C., frankly. We all have, you know, different cities have their own geographic uh, sins and idols, right? And ours is pride. And if you've noticed, we have many literal and figurative generals here in the area. Right? People who know the right thing to do. Another way to say it, we probably have too many generals and not enough troops. Peter is saying, hey, first follow Jesus. Want to be a good leader? Know yourself. Be a good shepherd. Follow somebody. Follow Jesus. Develop humility. Lead yourself, be a good shepherd, develop humility in the last thing for this morning. Cast away. Cast away. This is from verse 7, where Peter encourages us, these leaders he's developing, we're in the management training program for the kingdom, cast your anxieties on God. Which means that a godly leader still has anxieties. That's a super interesting connection, isn't it? Peter's not writing a letter to those of us in Cappadocia and Asia who are the weaker the lower, the younger, saying, hey, you guys, we know you guys have anxiety. Us super spiritual heroes, no anxiety. No, this is the leadership training program. And he's saying, cast your cares, cast your anxieties for yourself, for those you love, on God. So a godly leader knows what to do with their anxieties, they cast away. And you are uniquely prepared. This community is uniquely prepared to know how to do that. Do you know why? Because what do we do every Sunday during the summer, during communion? We do the Canyon liturgy. And what do we do? We 
Hey, that's a really baby response. Give me some. We cast our cares. Let's show me. Cast our cares. That's a little better. You get like a C. That's a C plus. If we cast our cares, we cast all our cares, right? Now remember who's telling us to do this. I'll, I'll learn from Corky. Peter is a fisherman. This is a professional fisherman telling you what to do with your anxieties. And he's telling you to cast them away. Right? To cast them. Now the typical fisherman's net at that time was about 25 feet in diameter. So figure, big net, probably circular, about 25 feet big. And the typical cast of a fisherman was anywhere from 4 to 12 feet. So let's say I'm middle strong, right? Like 6 feet I can cast and it's a 25 foot net. I'm going to take my net and I'm going to throw it 31 feet away. So that picture 31 feet is probably all the way to the percussion section of the worship team. Can I reach that anxiety over there if I cast it the way Peter's telling me? Peter, the professional fisherman, cornerstone of the church? No. I can't reach it. Take your anxieties and cast them that far away. That's what being a godly leader is. This verse is in the paragraphs on leadership. It's not another section of 1 Peter. Peter is exhorting the leaders to cast their cares upon the Lord. And again, from the Kenyan liturgy in the summer, how many, how many anxieties do we cast? All, not some. Not those that we think God is okay with dealing with. Not those that don't require me to know myself and look God full in the face and in the mirror. Not mine, but not my kids, because my kids' anxieties I frankly think I can solve. Nope. All our problems we cast, all our difficulties, we say it more than once every Sunday in the summer. Which, which begs a really good question, right? Is anybody here anxious this morning? Is anybody here anxious this morning? Because Peter wants you to know what to do with that anxiety. How, how do we cast? What are ways we cast? We pray, you pray on your own. You might need to cast with friends in a small group, over two or three. Lots of different ways over the next few weeks this community will be together. There's some meals the women are having together. We're encouraging the men to meet one-on-one. -on -one. You might want to, in those settings, say, is there something we can help anybody cast while we're together? You might want to meet with some a trained counselor, trained therapist. You might need help unpacking. I know I'm anxious now. I'm not even sure what it is that I need to figure out so I know what to cast. You might get prayer during communion. It's one of the things we have every week to go back. If you go back and ask for prayer, you're demonstrating humility because you're saying, I need help. You might not be able to articulate or want to. You could just walk back this morning during communion and say, I just need help casting my anxieties and let somebody pray. That's all we need to know to pray for you. I've, I've thought some, several times this fall that um, in this series in particular, Johnny and I, the two people you hear preach the most are Johnny and I. And Johnny and I are, are more carrot than stick preachers, right? Like Johnny and I are rarely going to like try to fire you up. You need to do this. You need to do that stuff. We are wooing you to that. We are much more, God loves you so much. Come on. We're invitation, right? 
But, but sometimes in love, as one of your shepherds, I want to say, some of you, because I know the burdens you're carrying, and it's more than you can carry. I literally, I want to look at you and your, your dirty sheep hooves and go, move those hooves to prayer during communion. Because we believe something happens. We believe you demonstrating to God, I know I have need in a community setting where there's extra prayer happening will bless you. So, hear that in love. Because like Peter, what I want you to know is the reason you should cast the cares is because of the second part of his sentence there. Cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. Peter's been saying that the whole letter. He's going to finish really there. We need leaders who know that God cares for them. Desperately willing to die for you. The, the, becoming the community daughter is becoming people who know how much God cares for us. This is a room, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, this is a room of people who know God cares for them. That's why we're here. Not because we're better. Not because we don't have anxieties. Not even because we're great leaders. But because we're stunned by how much Jesus cares for us. You matter to God. You a sheep, me a sheep, matter to God. So, in a second, I'm going to pray. And you might want to think about on the back end of our worship service, those four things. And maybe asking God to help you develop one of those principles. Knowing yourself to lead yourself. Being a good shepherd. Developing humility of considering others first. Or casting cares. And again, you might have particular cares this morning that you need help casting. Let's pray. Dear God, what a gift Peter is, that he, um, he failed, and he failed publicly, and he allowed the story to be told of his failure so that we might see your love for him and the transformation of him, and then he gave his life to you for decades and decades, and then ultimately to his own upside-down crucifixion. May we hear those good words. May my friends here know the invitation you extend to them to receive your care in all parts of their life, that all our problems and difficulties, all our need and desire perhaps to be really good leaders, all the ways we would like and know that you are, when you encourage us to grow, it's for our own good. We ask for your help. And even this morning, we ask to be reminded that you love us and care for us. In your holy name, amen. Religion.